It's the Mark Stein Show. Richard Burton was born 200 years ago this weekend, March 19th, 1821. No, 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 not the bloke who was married to Elizabeth Taylor, but the bloke who spent virtually the whole of the 19th century warming up the name for the bloke who was married to Elizabeth Taylor. Sir Richard Burton was born in Torquay, Devon, and became an explorer, cartographer, ethnologist, spy, swordsman, and the definitive translator of the Arabian Nights and the Kama Sutra. Is the Kama Sutra still a thing? It used to be a thing. I just can't be bothered with position 31 or position 72. They just don't do it for me. I only really get turned on by breaking news of the Durham report. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't say that correctly. The Durham report! The Durham report! The Durham report! Okay, now I'm too excited. Maybe we'll hold off on our Durham Report Watch update until I calm down a little. Remember November and all that non-existent election fraud? That wanker at Cumulus Media, whom I mocked mercilessly on every single Rush Limbaugh show I guest-hosted through January and February, that Cumulus tosspot said that any Cumulus Media host who so much as mentioned election fraud would be booted off his airwaves. Uh, Bear in mind that corporate entity, by the way, Cumulus Media, just tuck it away at the back of your brain because it will return before the end of our show. Anyway, our chum Michelle Bachman, who is a great life-affirming presence on our Mark Stein cruises. Uh, Michelle is not as craven as your average Cumulus radio host, and she has put together a conference on election integrity at Regent University. Like all conferences these days, you don't get to fly to Vegas, stay in a swank hotel and schmooze the marketing hotties in the banqueting suites. It's all done over the internet. I'll be participating. And Dr. Ben Carson from the Trump administration and Chris Kobach, who should have been a big shot in the Trump administration. Trump should have put him in charge of immigration. Uh, Ben and Chris and I and various secretaries of states and other eminences. It's this Tuesday, March 23rd, starting at noon Eastern. I'll be speaking at 4 p.m., but the whole thing will be well worth your time. And it's open to the public at no charge. All you have to do is go to regent.edu. 
I never know how to say this one, region.edu, that's region.edu slash election integrity. If you didn't get that, just cast an eye down the page of the very website you're listening to this show on because we'll type it all out down there. And don't forget to dial in Tuesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Um, That's uh, 4 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time if our overseas listeners uh, want to work it out from there. Michelle Buckman, doing the work Butch Conservative Talk Radio hosts at Cumulus Media are forbidden to do. By the way, now that Trump is the prince across the water in exile at Mar-a-Lago and it doesn't matter anymore, have you noticed how these election fraud cases coming before the courts are now going his way? Uh, precisely because it's too late to help him now. Um, oh, while we're doing courtroom news. We also breaking news from the Mann versus Stein case about to begin its 10th year. The latest trial judge, the fourth, or possibly his predecessor, the third trial judge, it's uh, not too clear, has granted National Review's motion for summary judgment. So National Review is out of the case and at our end now it's just Mann versus Stein without the National Review wimps getting in the way. I'll have more uh, to say on this in the next couple of days. China. As I always say, if you're not talking about China, you're not talking about anything that matters, because one way or another, all this other stuff greatly benefits Chairman Xi. So we have our regular feature about Chinese penetration of the West, which got rather too literal in recent weeks because the Chai Coms have decided to perform the COVID anal swab test on U.S. diplomats and all other foreigners who come within the reach of their clammy hands. So we're going to try and try and stay away from the anal swab thing today. Increasingly hard to do in a Chai Com world, but we're going to give it a go. Our Chinese penetration feature arose from the penetration of Eric Swalwell, California congressman and presidential candidate by Chinese intelligence in the comely form of the Matahari of Midwestern mayors, Fang Fang. Fang Fang. Uh, despite being a Chinese asshat... Wait a minute, wait a minute. Shouldn't, uh, shouldn't that be Chinese asset? Asset, not asshat. Bit of a typing error there. Anyway, despite being a Chinese asset, Congressman Shagdwell remains on the powerful House of Representatives Intelligence Committee where he has warned us of the dangers of glamorous, exotic foreign spies plying their sexual wares. There are a number of ways that a foreign adversary can seek to influence a person. Do you agree with that? Yes. Financial? Yes, that can be one. Uh, Romance, you said it's another. Yes. It's Eric Swalwell's Chinese Penetration of the Day. Devil woman who's gonna get you from behind. A lot of that about in Chairman Xi's world. Fortunately, Sir Alex Younger is on the case. Sir Alex is the former head of MI6, that's C in real life, or M if you're a 007 fan. 
The former C, Alex Younger, has given an interview to the Financial Times, belatedly catching up to the Stein thesis that, quote, we got it wrong on China, and admitting that the notion that enriching China and helping them develop the only economically viable form of communism would make them more like us is, quote, for the birds. Uh, Some of us were saying that an awful long time ago. Um, Sir Alex says uh, he doesn't want another Cold War, but, quote, I think you're seeing a steady but definite ideological divergence taking place. There will be at least two dominant value systems on one planet into the medium term, and that's just a fact, and it's where we are going. Two dominant value systems. Alex Younger says the way to think of it is one planet, two systems, which is a conscious echo of the deal Britain and China signed on to over Hong Kong. One country, two systems. The trouble is that last year, after less than a quarter of a century, China tore up that deal Uh, and decided to force Hong Kong to submit to one country, one system, and it paid no price. What's the betting on the likelihood of one planet, two systems, lasting any longer than one country, two systems? Well, for the answer to that, let us turn to this week's U.S.-China talks in Anchorage, Alaska. The first meeting between the Chairman Xi regime and the Joe Biden regime, Antony Blinken came on with... Boilerplate Secretary of State shtick. Each of these actions threaten the rules-based order that maintains global stability. Uh, I'm hearing deep satisfaction that the United States is back, that we're re-engaged with our allies and partners. I'm also hearing deep concern about some of the actions your government is taking. And then Blinken's opposite number from Beijing shoved it down his gullet. China's top diplomat, Yang Jiechi, far back with a 15-minute speech in Chinese, lashing out about what he said was the United States' struggling democracy and poor treatment of minorities, including the, quote, slaughtering of African Americans. The Chinese weren't holding back. So for China, it was necessary that we make our position clear. So let me say here that in front of the Chinese side, the United States does not have the qualification to say that it wants to speak to China from a position of strength. Chairman Xi's boys versus Blinken, Winken and Nod. That's the Secretary of State, Kamala and Joe. One planet, two systems. As in Hong Kong, that's merely an interim phase. OK, let's get back to that Durham Report Watch update on breaking news of the Durham Report. Where were we last time? Previously on The Durham Report. The Durham Report. Yeah, actually, 
maybe I'll hold off on that a bit. I'm still too excited. We have a COVID vaccine milestone. As you know, the thinking on the COVID vaccine was that once we were all vaccinated, we could get our vaccine passport, so-called, and life could go back to normal. Although they now say that what with the UK variant of the South African strain of the Papua New Guinea mutation, the vaccine probably isn't so good with all of those variations. Uh, so we might have to stay in semi-lockdown for another year or two, or full lockdown, like Paris has just gone back into. Anyway, uh, vaccination has gone badly in Canada. It's gone badly in Europe. So where is the first place on earth to vaccinate everybody? Step forward, Her Britannic Majesty's Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, the Right Honourable Matt Hancock. Madam Deputy Speaker, I know the House will also want to hear some good news from Gibraltar. Throughout the crisis, we've provided Gibraltar with PPE, testing and a sovereign guarantee for their COVID spending. We have also provided Gibraltar vaccines, as we have with all other British overseas territories. And I'm delighted to be able to tell the House that yesterday, Gibraltar became the first nation in the world to complete its entire adult vaccination programme. I want to pay tribute to all Gibraltarians for their fortitude during this crisis and the kind words of First Minister Fabian Picardo, who said yesterday, the United Kingdom has played a blinder on vaccinations and we are among the beneficiaries in the British family of nations. I agree. The British family of nations. Long time since I've heard any minister of the crown in Gibraltar or elsewhere say that. On balance, I think that's probably good news for the Mark Stein cruise, which will be sailing the Med this autumn. Whether we can put in at Monte Carlo or Marseille, I know not. But if Gibraltar's fully vaccinated, we will probably be permitted to stroll its streets uh, without harm to the locals, although we may infect a Barbary ape or two. The Mark Stein cruise sailing for Gibraltar and elsewhere this autumn. Speaking of the British family of nations from the land where everything is policed except crime. Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. I'd like to get to this story before it fades from the headlines. For a year on this show, we have chronicled the pitiful state of the constabulary that invented modern policing, the Metropolitan Police, as it has gone about harassing ordinary Londoners for sitting on park benches, being two miles from home, eating a star bar or curly whirly in the street, playing a Shostakovich string quartet in their own garden and various other hastily invented quote-unquote crimes, all in the cause of public health. At the same time as the Met's massed ranks of wanker coppers have been tormenting the man on the Clapham omnibus for perceived Chicom 19 infractions, they have allowed other Londoners, approved Londoners, to rampage through the streets and desecrate statues of notorious racists like uh, Lincoln and Churchill. Whether you belong to one of the approved groups or non-approved groups all seemed pretty obvious until last weekend. Just over a fortnight ago, Sarah Everard, a 33-year-old woman, left a friend's house at Clapham Common to walk home to Brixton Hill. 
She was never seen alive again. Outraged that a young woman cannot safely stroll the streets of London, various women's groups announced a vigil for Sarah on Clapham Common last weekend. The Metropolitan Police then banned it on Covid grounds. The organisers replied they'd be going ahead anyway, at which point the possibility of conflict attracted the usual opportunists from the harder core of activism. So the Met wanker coppers went in to shut it down and a thousand cell phone cameras captured the heirs to Sir Robert Peel going full wanker on women mourning one of their own. The phone footage showed bonkers constables trampling the flowers laid in Miss Everard's memory so that they could knock petite young ladies to the ground and handcuff them. It was optics wankery of such deranged heights uh, that there followed calls for the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, Dame Cressida Dick, to resign. I doubt she'll do that. She's an identity politics appointee, the first ever lesbian to head the Met. And the first lesbian public order regime in London's history cannot be seen to end in failure. But there were a couple of aspects uh, that heightened the absurdity of what happened. The day before Sarah Everard's body was found, Metropolitan Police officers arrested a suspect in her murder. Who is he? Uh, Well, he's a Metropolitan Police officer, one Wayne Cousins, assigned to the Parliamentary and Diplomatic Protection Branch, i.e. he's a bloke who protects the most powerful men in London, like ambassadors and government ministers, which should fuel no end of conspiracy theories in the weeks ahead. Adding a further wrinkle, Officer Cousins was reported for exposing himself at a hamburger joint three days before Miss Everard disappeared. He got out his sausage and McMuffins at a South London McDonald's And the Met is being accused of not doing anything about that, because if they had, he might not have had his uh, diplomatic protection firearm, uh, which he may or may not have used to seize his victim. But let's let's keep it simple. A metropolitan police officer murders a young woman and then his metropolitan police colleagues go and trample and brutalize the other women mourning her murder. Brilliant. Second interesting aspect, among the mourners attending the vigil was Her Royal Highness the Duchess of Cambridge, because according to the official statement from Kensington Palace, the Duchess remembers back when she was playing Miss Kate Middleton, quote, what it was like to walk around London at night before she was married. At the vigil, Her Highness appears to be strolling among and talking to the other attendees without her own protection officer, presumably because Dame Cressida Dick had banned the event and thus it would have been illegal for any policeman to accompany her to it. But the Duchess's presence is said to be a discreet reminder to dreary old Meghan Markle fans about who's yakking on Oprah and who's actually in the thick of it. And then there's all the politics, somewhat to the surprise of critics on the right, Dame Cressida drew a sort of faint line during the George Floyd frenzy, telling her officers they were not to take the knee. The jelly spine nothing of a chief constable in the adjoining county of Kent, for example, personally took a knee. Meanwhile, to the left, Dame Cressida is generally portrayed not as a lesbian in good standing, but as some sort of right-wing dominatrix. Uh, The Labour Party's Diane Abbott, who once... um, 
complimented me on my cufflinks, which not many hardcore socialist chicks do. Uh, Diane says there's no point getting rid of Cressida Dick because the Tories will only appoint someone even more reactionary. Um, and then, of course, there's the apolitical explanation, which is that the Met are just uh, cracking down on this vigil because they're, uh, they're doing their bit for their comrade who's on the hook for this murder. I think, personally, we're really beyond politics at this stage. Uh, between the law and order right and the pro-lockdown left, there has not been a lot of objection to Dame Cressida's regime uh, so a squalid and disgraceful constabulary that in almost every respect shames its founder has gotten away with tormenting nobodies. And as always happens, uh, tormenting nobodies gives you eventually a taste for tormenting somebodies. So it should be no surprise that that lack of proportionality the tormenting of citizens caught uh, attempting to buy a cup of coffee at Costa two miles from home. Uh, it should be no surprise that that lack of proportionality eventually gets extended to larger, more prominent, more fashionable targets like a women's vigil. The loss of proportionality in policing is not a small thing, and it's very hard to recover. So as Sir Robert Peel's unworthy successors begin their second year of damnable torments, let's give them the full wanker. Who's the wanker? Who's the wanker? Who's the wanker in the blue hat? Who's the wanker in the big blue hat? Okay, as an antidote to all the wankers, let's get up to speed with the Durham Report. For our non-American listeners, I should explain that in this great republic, when corrupt ne'er-do-wells deeply embedded in the most powerful agencies on earth abuse those powers, the system has an ingenious check and balance, the appointment of a man of integrity, a straight shooter, a crack investigator, determined to follow the evidence wheresoever it leads, and however long it takes. Back in 1944, I remember Durham walking out the door. Mama told me he would get him for sure, he would get him. Comey, Clapper, Brandon, Struck and Steel. Now I'm gonna read old Durham soon. I'm gonna read old Durham soon. I'm gonna read old Durham soon. But the waiting's really getting me. Waiting can get you doomed, but John Durham has to dot every I and cross every T before all the I's and T's get redacted by the Department of Justice press office. Last time round, we reported that well-connected sources close to the Durham investigation 
were saying that John Durham was planning on bringing criminal indictments against persons connected with the Russia investigation scam. To date, Durham has only managed to get um, Kevin Kleinsmith? Kevin Clonesmith? Kevin Tweedlesmith, the uh, the Deputy Assistant Undersecretary of the Bureau of Nobodies, who pleaded guilty to a serious crime and then got 20 minutes of community service. On Thursday this week, the Durham investigation passed what in the leaden prose of American journalism is always called a grim milestone. The investigation of the investigation has now lasted longer than the investigation. Former special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation lasted 674 days. Special counsel John Durham's investigation into Mueller's investigation is now 676 days and counting. But don't worry, those criminal indictments are coming any day now. Wait and see, you can take that to the bank. And that's your Durham Report Watch Update, day 676. for another Durham Report Watch update on The Mark Stein Show. Don't touch that dial. When Durham Report news breaks out, we break in. Mark Stein's Poem of the Week. As we mentioned at the top of the show, this weekend is the bicentenary of Sir Richard Burton, born March 19th, 1821 in Torquay, Devon. Richard Burton led one of the great 19th century lives and led it for the most part with a magnificent pair of moustaches, even by the standards of the day. Indeed, in his first term at Trinity College, Oxford, he challenged to a duel a fellow student who mocked Burton's moustaches. He loved languages, especially Arabic, and eventually became fluent in 29 of them, European, Asian, African. But he also studied falconry and fencing uh, and uh, eventually was permanently expelled from Oxford for attending a steeplechase. After university, well, where do you start? He fought in the Crimean War. He was the first European to see Lake Tanganyika. He was a British consul in what's now Equatorial Guinea and Brazil and Syria, uh, defying the prohibition against infidels setting foot in Mecca. He went there in disguise on pain of death and wrote a terrific account of what he found. He published an unexpurgated translation of 1001 Nights, the Arabian Nights, 
and uh, another unexpurgated translation of the Kama Sutra, and a third of the Perfumed Garden, which is basically an Arab Kama Sutra. He wrote on everything from ethnography to sexual practices, with a great eye for detail. In volume 10 of the Arabian Nights, he posited the existence of what he termed the Sotadic Zone, named for Sotades, the Greek poet of the 3rd century BC. The Sotadic Zone was that part of the world where sodomy and pederasty were endemic. Uh, the zone included the Mediterranean lands of southern Europe and North Africa, the stands of Central Asia through to China, and the entirety of the Americas. Yes, even unto the chillier parts of Canada. But let's put all the sex aside for a minor poem of his I've always liked, in which the mystery is not intruded upon. I assume he happened to write this after uh, espying a landscape into which an unknown girl walked. And sometimes you just want to survey the scene and let the girl stay unknown and retain the mystery. And today, when all the corona-masked ladies of the West are as the veiled, black-eyed houries of the East, all the girls are more unknown than they ever were in 2019. First published posthumously in Poetry Magazine in 1913 by Sir Richard Burton, An Impression. The arching skies, the ancient winds soughing through immemorial trees, the sense of all that lurks behind the years now tattered masonries, where the blithe birds once built their home high in the air-sweet leafy dome. Then the lone figure of a girl, clear-limbed against the buttressed hills, slim, beautiful, a tiny pearl set round with ruby light that fills the all-illumined spaces where no dark may creep nor shadow dare. Not for an earldom would I break the silence of yon dreaming maid. I could not play her soul awake with love's most magic serenade. Her thought holds secrets hid from me, deeper than mortal minstrelsy. A poem from Me to You by Sir Richard Burton upon the occasion of his bicentennial. I've never forgotten that couplet. Not for an earldom would I break the silence of yon dreaming maid. <laughs> Mark's Mailbox is on the air. You know, we ask commenters to stay on topic at Stone Online, but sometimes something slips through, and it did the other day, and I regret it because in this case it happened to be just recycled propaganda from Cumulus Media, whom I mentioned at the top of the show in another context. And in this case it was a grossly misleading story that Cumulus pushed to the effect that Dan Bongino was, quote, replacing Rush, and indeed was Rush's anointed successor, Jamie Marsh, 
a first-month founding member of the Mark Stein Club, responded as follows, writes Jamie, I like Don Bongino. Don Bongino. I think I think that came up that way in uh, one of the various uh, CRTV court documents. I like Dan Bongino. That's what you mean to say, Jamie. I like Dan Bongino. I have nothing against him. I didn't listen to Rush too much, mostly because I was always working at the time. But of course, I'm aware of his contributions and place in history. And I would go out of my way to listen in if Mark was guest hosting. I think that Mark would be the heir apparent to Rush. But I'm sure there were a lot of business decisions made behind the scenes. But I'll say this. If I had to choose between having the Mark Stein Club and being able to listen to Mark at 3 p.m. every day, I'd choose the Mark Stein Club. Well, that's uh, awfully kind of you, Jamie, but no need to worry. The Dan Bongino story is rubbish. Dan is not Rush's successor. That's just spin from Cumulus Media. Rush's successor is going to be picked by people you've never heard of. Um and, uh, and I don't mean uh, Mr. Snurdley, uh, our dear friend uh, Mr. Snurdley, with whom I've had the pleasure of working for 15 years. And indeed, Mr. Snurdley will be joining me on the Mark Stein cruise. If you're, uh, if you're interested, if you feel that having Conrad Black and uh, Douglas Murray and Michelle Buckman, it's not, that's not, a, well, we've, uh, you, you're going to be uh, able to cruise the med with uh, Mr. Snurdley. But anyway, um, this is all just spin from Cumulus Media. Uh, as I said, Rush's successor is going to be picked by corporate people you've never heard of, specifically a lady called Julie Talbot who's the head honcho at Premier Radio and played a cameo role in, uh, I think I'm counting this correctly, the third of CRTV Cockwomble Carrie Katz's Suits Against Me. That was the one in federal court in Nevada. Uh, as I said, Julie is the uh, head honcho at Premier Radio, and uh, the other guy in the mix is a gentleman called Craig Kitchen, uh, who very kindly testified on my behalf in the, uh, I think I'm correct, counting here too, the first and second of the Cockwomble Katz's suits and um, testified very persuasively by comparison with CRTV's sleazebag witnesses. Uh, Craig was the founder of Premier Radio and now runs the rush end of things, the EIBN. Premier is the biggest radio syndicator in America and their talk neck work includes Glenn Beck at 9am, Rush at noon, Sean Hannity at 3, Buck Sexton at 6pm, all times Eastern. So they now need a new show at noon. Um, uh, They do all kinds of other shows. Steve Harvey, The Top 40 with Ryan Seacrest, Delilah's Love Songs uh, at Night. Um, Some of these people I've had the pleasure of meeting if I've ever guest hosted for Rush uh, down in New York, uh, sometimes you'll spot a guy on the other side of the glass and realize that uh, Ryan Seacrest has uh, stuck his head round the door to see if you're likely to be any threat to his Top 40 show. Premier is very big, and they're now part of iHeartMedia, who own a ton of radio stations and air these shows on their own stations and also sell them to stations they don't own. Some of those stations are owned by Cumulus Media, who have a much smaller syndication arm, uh, Westwood One, And they're best known, at least to me, for the threat made by their senior executive vice wanker 
of uh, corporate wankery, Brian Phillips, who after January the 6th told his hosts, including Dan Bongino and Mark Levin, that any further talk of election irregularities would result in immediate dismissal. Quote, if you transgress this policy, you can expect to separate from the company immediately. Which I regard as very damaging to the uh, integrity of those hosts, because it means that if Mark Levin suddenly ceases talking about election fraud, is it because he's lost interest in the subject, which is fair enough, or is it because he doesn't want to endanger his paycheck? So I regard a jerk like Brian Phillips as problematic for the reputation of his talent. So I would never sign a deal with him in a thousand years. And as you know, I made a point through all my rush shows of January and February of pissing over Cumulus, even though I was airing on Cumulus stations in Chicago, Los Angeles, Washington, all over the map, because you have to make it plain for the health of the industry that you're not just a sock puppet for some jerk like this Phillips guy. You say what you're saying because you mean it and it's what you want to talk about. This Phillips guy has form in this regard. As you may recall, Mark Levin had an interview with Donald Trump booked for the afternoon of Election Day. Cumulus cancelled that interview at the last minute to uh, Levin's uh, apparent fury, uh, but nothing other than his fury. So Brian Phillips and Cumulus are not anybody I'd be interested in going into business with under any circumstances. And true to form, yet again, uh, Cumulus, in its announcement of this new Dan Bongino show, grossly misled people. They're creating a show that will run in opposition to whatever follows the Rush Limbaugh show. Maybe it will work, maybe it won't, but it's like me announcing I'm succeeding Piers Morgan on Good Morning Britain when all I'm doing is launching Mark's morning merry-go-round on Rock All TV every other Tuesday. OK, maybe the Shetland Broadcasting Network too. iHeart Premier, that's to say Julie Talbot and Craig Kitchen, will be appointing Rush's successor to fill the hole in their schedule. Everyone wants to pretend they're Rush's chosen one, but Dan Bongino knows this Phillips creep is a wanker, and uh, I don't think he should have gone along with that press release, and I know it's just their spin, but uh, I can certainly tell you that um, uh, we always insist, in my modest little operation, we always insist, whoever we're uh, working with, that we get to see those press releases before they go out. Walt Trimmer, a Stein Clubber from Oregon, adds this, the EIB network was a complicated empire held together by one man, with rushes passing all the syndicators, radio station owners and ad salesmen are going to want to take a bigger cut of the profits and put out a blockbuster talk show on the cheap. Bongino is just another face in the crowd of talk show hosts. The empire is going to crumble, like Austria-Hungary when the Archduke was shot. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily uh, disagree... Uh, about that last slide, Walt, although the specifics of your analogy are a bit iffy. I see Rush more as the aged emperor Franz Josef, whose empire almost everyone understood 
would not survive his passing. And thanks partly to flaky heirs, uh, in this scenario, Glenn Beck would be Crown Prince Rudolph. But maybe we're, uh, maybe we're just overextending it all. Uh, Rush built an industry in his name. And if talk radio survives in America, and it doesn't really exist in that form anywhere else, uh, it will survive by evolving into something different from what it was when Rush invented it. Quite what that is, we don't yet know, but I seriously doubt the hack management of Cumulus Media will have much say in it, and I will caution again, please do stay on topic in the comments, because I really don't want crap propaganda from total flabby asses at Cumulus disfiguring this site. Mark Stein is breathing new life into death. The Mark Stein Club is proud to present a new weekly audio special, a serialization of Mark Stein's Passing Parade. Tune in every Saturday as Mark shares obituaries and appreciations for folks from Ronald Reagan and the Queen Mum to Ray Charles and the guy who invented Cool Whip, exclusively for members of the Mark Stein Club. Find out more by going to www.steinonline.com. Just to give the aforementioned Ryan Seacrest a run for his money, I'd like to introduce a hit record. Uh, this was the Billboard number one single in America exactly 80 years ago, March 22nd, 1941, by which time it had been a monster hit for almost a year. Twelve months. It's by the unsurpassed clarinetist Artie Shaw. And when I talked to him about all those early hits of his half a century later, he made what might seem an obvious point, uh, but one I think that is also rather profound about what Noel Coward called the potency of cheap music. Here's me with Artie Shaw. You're also famous for, uh, for at moments in your career, having a go at members of uh, your, uh, your public your, who, who only ever want to hear frenesy or, or begin Yeah, begin. whatever. Um, <laughs> do you think... <laughs> You're making me laugh. This wasn't the reason I quit the music business. But do, do you th here they are, yet here they are. They still want to hear Begin the Beginning. I don't frenesy. give a damn what they want to hear. I don't have to play it. Yes. I mean, it's like asking Van Gogh to paint the same painting over and over and over. He did it. I did begin. If you want it, get the record. People say, why don't you, why did you quit? I say, have you got every record I ever made? Well, no. Well, then get them all and ask me. First, I mean, you know, you can't tell people what to do. But uh, uh, there's a great presumption, don't that, you think? Do you think when you, when you write that, in a way, it's because you've got all those kind of things going on in your head and they're too, music is too abstract to put all that into? Well, Keats put it very well, you know. John Keats wrote a line about not wanting to die until his pen had, quote, gleamed his teeming, gleaned his teeming brain. Gleaned my teeming brain. It's a wonderful line. You hope to be able to put a footprint somewhere or it'll last a little while. The illusion is going to go on for a while. Of course, the cement can disappear, too. The now is all we have, and tomorrow is what you're aiming at. If you can get through now to tomorrow, you're doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. And people talk about major art and minor art. Let's say Beethoven's A minor quartet. Everybody would agree. Or Bach's Toccata and Fugue. Play that for Kalahari Pygmy. Is that art? He's going to say, boy, a bunch of funny noises. Yes. But do you, do you think with the, 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 the trick, if you like, there are certain things that one can be fairly, uh, that, that are fairly reliable? I mean, the Mozart concerto that you... Well, that was a good piece of work. Here it is, a couple hundred years later. Here I am, some of my work, 50 years later. I would say if a piece of popular music 
at the time was written, last 50 years, it's got a good shot at what we laughingly call immortality because we may be going the way of the dinosaur. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what immortality means anyway. But that's what we aim at, isn't it? We're aiming to transcend this short lifetime we have. Do something that'll outlast us. We have children, and we write music, and we paint, and all that. From back when we were genuinely multicultural, a great American band making a piece by a Mexican marimba player, Alberto Dominguez, a hit around the world eight decades ago. Frenesy, Artie Shaw and his band. And as Artie said to me, if a piece of popular music lasts 50 years, it's got a good shot at what we laughingly call immortality. And since he said that to me, his recording of Frenesy has lasted uh, almost another 30 years. So his statement is three-fifths more true 
than when he first advanced the proposition to me. That will do it for today. You like Walt Trimmer's Austro-Hungarian analogy for American radio. We have a Habsburg for you on Saturday's episode of Mark Stein's Passing Parade, plus movies, music and more. Stay safe, stay free. That's fantastic. I like it when you uh, when you hit the ground running, as you certainly have done. Yeah, right. Aren't you sure? Thanks very much indeed. Thank you, Mark. It's been nice being here. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.